This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. Just reading verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the message, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Scripture speaks of the death of the cross the blood of his cross, the offering of the cross, the preaching, the ministry, the message, the word of the cross. Ever since man fell in the Garden of Eden, God has been speaking. He has something to say. He's been preaching to this world. The cross has got a word for us. It's got a word for lost humanity. And God has made sure, one way or the other, that no man can stand before him and say, I didn't know you existed. He has given them a word. Now, God has various ways of speaking to humanity. Probably one of the most obvious and evident ways is creation, nature, the work of his hands. It says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So God uses nature, creation, to speak to his creation. Psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this very clear. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Nature has a voice. It speaks. 
throughout all of the earth, God is speaking. But nature doesn't have a heart. It's got a voice, but it doesn't have a heart. Gravity is a wonderful thing. If it was not for gravity, we would be spinning off into space tonight. It is gravity that keeps this earth in motion. It is gravity that causes to circuit the sun every 365 days. It's gravity that causes it to spin at a thousand miles an hour, which gives us our day. It travels around the sun in a locked position. At 66,000 miles an hour, from this time last night, we have traveled one and a half million miles through space, and we're not even aware of it. Such is the power of gravity. The gravity of the sun, the gravity of the earth, the gravity even of the moon. The earth affects the moon. It holds it by its gravity, but the moon's gravity also affects the earth. That's how we got our tides. Whenever the moon exerts its gravity on the earth, then the oceans bulge towards it. And that's what gives us a full tide. And then as the earth goes around, then it releases, and then it ebbs. So at one side of the ocean, it's ebbing, and one side, it's flowing. And that's a wonderful thing, because that means then that the oceans, it's just like a great big washing machine that the water is sloshing through continually, and that keeps it fresh, and that puts the nutrients through the sea for the fish to eat. And that means then that it's not stale, if there's no gravity, and the oceans were just sitting there stale and going stagnant, it would be terrible. But they're not, because the gravity of the moon keeps it going. Gravity is a wonderful thing. It's a great blessing to us, isn't it? And it speaks to us, because it's nature, it's creation, but it doesn't have a heart. If I fall off a building, gravity will drag me to my death. Without a second thought, it's got no heart. God has given creation that man can see that there is a God, that God exists. There's not a tribe in any jungle on the face of the earth that doesn't know there's a God. You may not call them what we call them, and they're usually quite afraid of their God or their gods, but they worship. And oftentimes they worship nature and they feel that there's a God of nature that they've got to worship. And if they don't, they're in trouble. It's an inbuilt thing because God has put eternity in our hearts. But with all the wonders of nature that should point men to God, isn't it interesting that man today says that because they examine nature, because they examined creation, that they feel there is no God, that all of that self-perpetuated and happened spontaneously and continues on its own. The very thing that God put here to show men that he exists is the very thing that they say tells them that God doesn't exist. It's not crazy, isn't it? 
It shows you the foolishness of man, isn't it? If we really want to know the heart of God, then we'll not find it in creation, but we'll find it in redemption. That exposes the heart of God. The love of God towards us that sent his son to die for us. Yes, nature will show us that God is omnipotent, that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere, if we care to believe. But only redemption shows us the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the salvation of God. But God says because he has shown man his creation, they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, not in an intimate way, but in a sense they knew that God exists, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, I, I love nature programs. I really do. And I love programs dealing with the cosmos. I really do. But after about 10 minutes, I get so angry. Oftentimes, I have to, I have to switch over because of the foolishness it's being taught. But here it is. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so once man has left God out of everything, but because... God has put eternity in his heart. He will worship something. He'll find something to worship. Should it be a stone or a metal image, he will worship. He cannot do anything else but worship. And if he won't worship an idol, he'll worship man himself. Because man will want to be his own God. Is not the lie the devil told Eve in the garden, you shall be as God? knowing good and evil. And so man changed the glory of the incorruptible God like an image, like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. But then he goes from idolatry. You see, the trouble is once we leave God out of the equation, it's a downward path. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It will happen. And so once here we see that God has left man, man has left God out of the equation, what happens? He begins to worship idols. Or at least he begins to worship man as a God. But then what happens? Immorality. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Not a lie, but the lie. That big lie in the Garden of Eden. You shall be as God. We don't need God anymore because we have got our technology, we have got our infrastructures, we have got our, our everything we need to exist. We have it by ourselves. We don't need God. 
There's the big lie today. And what happens? We begin to worship something else. And then we become corrupt. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use of that which is against nature. Like also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased things. He gave them up and he gives them over to debased things, to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They're whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. Is not our nations going down that slope? We don't want God in our schools. We don't want God in our politics. We don't want God in our business. We want to sideline all talk, all thought of God. We don't want it in science. We don't want it in biology. We just don't want God. We do not want this man to rule over us. They said about Jesus. And what happens? We worship other things. Or we worship man. Then what happens? We become immoral. And then we go down that slippery slope until today, we're almost shockproof at what we see and what we hear. And not only that, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. <laughs> it seems to be the wider you live today, the more you're uh, acclaimed and the more claim to fame you will have. How many young singers have you seen starting out who were clean cut, and then suddenly they wanted to change their image and they became vile, immoral, no sense of decency. And then they come out with statements as, I don't believe in God. <laughs> Someone was even brought up in church. Somebody used to sing in church. I don't believe in God. Well, it's convenient, isn't it? Because if you don't believe in God, then you feel you can do anything because there's no judgment. None whatsoever if you don't believe in God. And so God speaks through nature. God speaks through history. His past dealings with the sons of men, his interventions in history, God has always intervened in history. Right even at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God intervened immediately. God came to man in the cool of the day. They had a wonderful relationship but they fell into sin. What did God do? He immediately intervened, didn't he? He made man a coat of skins. We talked this morning how in, at uh, the Tower of Babel, how that God came down, confused their tongues and scattered them. He was intervening. Read the history of Israel. Read the historical books of the Old Testament. You'll see that God was constantly intervening in the lives of men and nations and kings. 
That's why God raised up prophets. God had a priesthood, but God had his prophets. And his prophets spoke on his behalf to the kings, to the leaders of the nations, because God has something to say to them. God is still speaking to the leaders of nations today, but they're not listening. Sure they're not. Our job is to pray for them. Really, truly. And much as you disagree with many other things, but we are to pray for them. That's what the Bible teaches. And God speaks, but they're not listening. So all throughout the generations, God has been speaking. Now there was a time and there was a period for 400 years when the heavens were as brass and God said nothing for four centuries. But then after four centuries, God began speaking to this world again. And he sent his angel to speak to a young maiden called Mary. And then that whole new order was set in motion and God is still speaking today God is still interested in the nations today the nations at the moment are in a state of flux things are happening so quickly changing so dramatically who would have thought what we're watching on our telescreens 10 years ago who would have thought it ever would have happened who would have thought that people would be going through the Middle East beheading people and killing them wholesale? Who would have thought that? But it's happening before our eyes. We see it in our televisions, don't we? Does God not care? Is he not interested? He's washed his hands of this word? No, God speaks. And he will yet speak. So God speaks through history. In Second Peter chapter 2, Verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah like into ashes, Condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards who would live ungodly. And deliver righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, and so forth. So you see how God spoke to angels, to the antediluvians, those who lived before the flood, and to the sodomites. And he spoke loud and clear so that those who would come after would get the message but we're not getting the message because the world is as bad as ever it's been isn't it so God is going to have to speak again isn't he and again and again and he will and he does God speaks through signs and wonders God revealed himself in the Old Testament as a mighty deliverer and miracle worker he opened the Red Sea under Moses he parted the Jordan under Joshua brought fire down from heaven under Elijah, brought water from the flinty rock and manna from heaven under Moses. God was speaking through signs and wonders 
all throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the dumb to speak and the lepers to be cleansed and even the very dead to be raised. And yet man is not listening. Do you remember whenever Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, how that they consented together, not just to put Jesus to death, but Lazarus to death also? <laughs> Can you imagine if you literally with your own eyes saw a man walking out of a tomb who was dead for four days, now had been alive, would you want to do away with the evidence? That was how much of their hatred and animosity and bitterness towards Christ was. They were even prepared to kill Lazarus to do away with the very evidence. You know, man's still like that today. No matter what evidence you give him, he wants to do away with it. There's a great movement today who's trying to redress the balance of the evolutionist and all these people who are anti-God. And great movements, there's tons of material we can buy and get today from several movements around the earth that's wonderful, trying to teach people the truth. But no matter what they say, the evolutionist will have another answer because they don't want God in the equation. They dare not have God in the equation because once you say God did this, God created this, then where does that leave you? What are you going to do with this God? You have to do something, don't you? You can't be neutral. But God still speaks. God speaks through conscience. In John chapter 8... And this is a story that we're very familiar with. I just want to point something out. John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. And that was true. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, listen to this, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And you know the rest of the story. But notice here that Jesus appealed to their conscience. Conscience is something that God has put within the heart of every human being. It's God's calling card. It instinctively lets us know right from wrong. And Jesus could have dealt with them different ways, but he chose to speak to their conscience. Now we'll not talk about what he wrote in the ground and all of that. We've done all that before. But just that fact 
that he appealed to their conscience and it worked. Their conscience spoke to them. Their conscience condemned them. Their conscience revealed the hardness of their hearts. Their conscience showed them that they equally were wrong. They equally were sinners. Jesus used conscience. So their conscience was awakened. Conscience can be seared, 1 Timothy 4.2. Hebrews 9.14, conscience can be cleansed. Acts 24.16 talks about a pure conscience. 1 Corinthians 8 and 7 talks about a weak conscience. Titus 1.15, a defiled conscience. Acts 23 and 1, a good conscience. Matthew 27, 3, a convicting conscience. 1 Corinthians 10, 25, 29, a satisfied conscience. Hebrews 10, 22, an evil conscience. And on it goes. So our conscience is something that's not static in our lives. It changes. And it can be from pure to defiant. It can be something that, <laughs> that we can sear. It can be something that we can end up denying. It can be something that we can end up refusing to heed. Or it can be something that can cause us to act rightly. Hmm. Conscience is a powerful thing. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we were in chapter 2 a moment ago. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir you up but your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles over the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Notice this. For this they were willfully, for this they willfully forgot, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then was existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. For this they willfully forget. You see, here is a conscious, deliberate act of people. This was not by accident. This was not something that was casual. It was something they thought and deliberately chose to forget. To put it aside, to ignore it, to pretend it won't happen to us. That's what that's saying. And so, Paul writing again in that first chapter of Romans, we read those verses, we don't need to read them again. For the wrath of man is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress means to hold down, to stifle, 
to deliberately, consciously hold down, knowing full well, but still holding down. That's why Paul says they are without excuse. Not talking about ignorance here. The problem with the man today is not his intellect, it's his heart. It's a moral problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not the head, it's the heart. That's where the issue lies. So when people say, the more intellectual I became, or the more I understood about science and so forth, the less I believed in God. Rubbish. It's a heart issue, not a head issue. <laughs> Some of the greatest scientists ever lived were believers, believed in the Word of God, believed in creation. So it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. It's always a heart issue, isn't it? Even the ordinary man, like us who are not scientists or particularly clever or great intellectuals or academics, when it came to getting saved, it came down to a heart issue, didn't it? It always comes to a heart issue. And so, this is man willingly, consciously, deliberately suppressing the truth. It's a defiant Denial of truth. No wonder Paul says they are without excuse. But God hasn't finished speaking. Sure he hasn't. He's still got a word to say to this world. It's the word of his cross. Evolutionists have sought to explain God's creation away. Historians have put the Bible in the dusty archives of fiction. The humanists have refused the sovereignty and the supernaturalness of God. The sinner has resisted the voice of his conscience, but God is still speaking. There's still a word from the cross, and there's always going to be. And thankfully, it's a word of mercy, isn't it? It's a word of mercy. In Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Remember how God went to Cain said, where is your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? He says, the voice of your brother is cried out from the earth. What was it crying for? For justice, for vengeance, for recompense. But the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy, for forgiveness, for freedom. What if Jesus had a cried out for justice and vengeance? Would there be any of us here today? Not at all. Would all of us have been in the fires of hell tonight? But his blood cried out for mercy. His blood cried out for forgiveness. His blood cried out for freedom for us. Speaks better things than that of Abel. So it's a word of mercy, isn't it? It's a word of pardon. Pardon for our past, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
Not that God forgets our sin. He remembers it no more. I forget a lot of things. I find I'm increasingly forgetting a lot of things. Do you ever meet somebody in the street and they're talking to you and your brain's going, who is this person? I know their face, but I just cannot think of their name. <laughs> Those of a certain age will understand perfectly what I mean. <laughs> That's a malfunction of her brain, isn't it? Somewhere in the circuitry has gone a bit awry. But God's not like that. I will remember your sin no more against you. I'll not forget about it because if I forget about it, then I could remember it again. I will remember it no more against you forever. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God it's gone. Under the blood, gone forever. It's a word for pardon for our past. It's a word of pardon for our present. First John 2 and 1, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Ah. If we sin tonight, thank God right now, seated at the right hand of the Father is our advocate. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. It's a word of pardon for our past, for our present, and for our future. First John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not that we're going to plan to go out and sin deliberately and then say, oh God, forgive me. No. But if we sin, and all of us as human beings are frail enough to do that. And if we sin, ha, ah, thank God. If we confess our sins, his promise is he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Glory to God. But it's also a word of warning. It is also a word of warning. In Hebrews 12, after that writer was speaking about the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Then he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. His voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. It's a word of warning. See, man can rationalize away God's signs and wonders. Or you can naturalize, if there's such a word, all of creation as men do today. Or you can relate the Bible or relegate the Bible to just a history book. Or you can paralyze your conscience. But how are we going to answer the word from the cross?
God brings us always to the cross. Huh. Always brings us to the cross. Finally, it's a word of love. The word of the cross is a word of love. For God so <coughs> loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a word of love, isn't it? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Amen? Revelation 1, and 1 chapter 1, this is the last scripture we'll read tonight. I think this is an absolutely beautiful scripture. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, listen to this, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The cross has a word of love for humanity. From him who loved us and washed us in his own blood. That's the depth that Jesus went to demonstrate his love to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the most powerful word that we have tonight is the word of the cross. That's what changed every one of our lives, wasn't it? Every one of us, no matter how we came or how long it took us to come or how we got there in the end, all of us came to the foot of that cross and God spoke to us and changed our life forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your cross still speaks tonight. It speaks to a lost and a dying, rebellious world. And even though there's a warning, yet you speak in love and mercy. Father, you have withheld your son from coming back to this earth that men may repent, that men may receive your son as their savior. We thank you for that long suffering, your tender mercies. We bless you for your patience and perseverance with us. And we thank you for that. Lord, all of us tonight have family. We have extended family. We have relatives who are not saved. As yet they're not in the family of God. Lord, in your mercy, will you be patient? And will you send your Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts the word of the cross? That they may bow their knee and come to Jesus and be saved and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. So we give you thanks for this tonight. We thank you that you found us and you won us to yourself. Our names are in the book of life and for that we are eternally grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. 
For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.